Good morning, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media soundbites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today, our show is about efforts to monitor and restore alewife runs in eastern Maine's rivers and streams. Alewives and their close cousins, the blueback herring, play an important role in the region's ecology, as food for eagles, osprey, bears, raccoon, and even cod out in the ocean when they spend part of their life cycle in the saltwater. Alewives need free-flowing streams in order to make it back up to the lakes and ponds where they spawn, but centuries of obstructions like dams have affected their populations. In the last few years, a number of people in Downeast Maine, from commercial fishermen to volunteers, have contributed countless hours to the restoration of these fish. People are rebuilding fish ladders, replacing culverts, dismantling debris that blocks fish passage, conducting population estimates, and much more to help our sea-run fish come back. Today's show is about alewives and the people who work to protect sea-run fish and their habitats. In an age where environmental degradation dominates the headlines, this is a story of hope with Maine's residents and fishermen taking the lead. Before we dive in, I wanted to let listeners know that today's show is pre-recorded and we will not be taking any calls today. This spring, I spent time attending alewife-related events and hearing from several people who dedicate a lot of time and energy to these fish. The number of people engaged in volunteering at alewife runs, from the Midcoast region to the Canadian border, is truly inspiring, with more teams coming online each year. Today, we'll hear a few local stories. First, we'll hear from Brett Ciccatelli, a fisheries biologist with the Downey Salmon Federation, who conducted regional trainings, including one in Surrey, on how to be an alewife volunteer. We'll then hear from Katie Clark, a student at College of the Atlantic who volunteers to help maintain the alewife run at Solmesville. And then we'll hear from Daryl Young, a commercial alewife harvester who has maintained runs in Franklin for 18 years. In each case, you will find these folks are passionate about sea-run fish and incredibly knowledgeable about their local streams. And that local knowledge is a theme that runs through each of their stories. So let's start with Brett Ciccatelli. Brett is a fisheries biologist for the Downey Salmon Federation, but he's also known locally as the Alewife Ambassador for all the work he does teaching people about the fish, its habitat, and how people of all ages can get involved in monitoring and supporting its population. Downey Salmon Federation conducted several volunteer alewife monitoring trainings this spring, and I got the chance to attend the one in Surrey on April 18th, before the fish started really running. In this recording, Brett explains the ecology of sea-run fish, methods for monitoring and maintaining fish populations, and how people can collect data that helps the Maine Department of Marine Resources make management decisions about these populations. 
Given that Brett was running the training, you will hear mostly from him, but you'll also catch a few other voices from participants in the training who ask great questions, as well as a few who answer questions too, such as Bailey Bowden, the Shellfish Committee Chair in the town of Penobscot, who is also working on restoring alewife runs there. So here's Brett opening a Downey Salmon Federation training session in Surrey. Um, first, I'm Brett. I know a lot of people in here, but not everyone, which is great that we have some new folks. I work with the Downey Salmon Federation. I work primarily around alewives and smelt um, monitoring and, and uh, data collection and restoration. I also work with our land trust and I'm um, just involved in the Union River, some work we're doing there. One thing on that about this coast, there's little indentations everywhere, and there's lakes everywhere, and all those little lakes are connected by little rivers. Um, so there's lots of habitat for fish that use the oceans and use the rivers. Um, it's also in this context of the native landscape. So you know, this is the sort of overlay of Passamaquoddy and Penobscot traditional lands, homelands. Um, and this, these are people that were just as tied to the coast as we are today, more so, obviously. Um, but it's not a new thing that people care about the fisheries around here, so we kind of work in that context too. This is sort of a long history that we're, we're operating within of people who are identified by fish. Um, the Passamaquoddy word for the name, some derivative of people of the fish, or people who eat fish. When I think about fish, you know, there's all these different species that are anadromous or catadromous, so they use um, fresh and salt water as part of the life history. There's salmon, there's striped bass, sturgeon, American eel, short, uh, shortened Atlantic sturgeon, two different types, tomcod, brook trout, rainbow smelt, white perch, lamprey, shad, alewives, and blueback herring. It's a bunch of species. It's not the most common on Earth to have places that have all these different species that utilize this kind of landscape. Again, it's like the glaciers only left here in a short time ago, and the rivers and lakes um, were this great habitat for these creatures that can utilize the food from the ocean and the habitat of the river. So pretty neat place to be in. Like right now, you know, the rivers are full of baby eels that are coming back and coming upstream, and adult rainbow smelt, um, something that right in this harbor there's like a 1907 newspaper article I was reading from the American that, you know, there were just tents full of people out there fishing for a smell, which they put in boxcars and send down the stage or the railroad, or the stage up to the railroad down to Boston. Um, you know, different, different time, more ice than for that kind of fishery, but the fish were there and they're likely still there in some number. So focusing on river herring or alewives, there's this word, sikonomic, which is a Passamaquoddy word that I may not say correctly, but the gist of it is um, a fish that feeds all. And that's really, you know, why you alewives matter. It's because they're, you know, they matter because they're alewives, but they also matter because they feed everything else that we like. They feed the fish that we like, they feed the birds we like, um, they feed the landscape, they feed us. Brett, do we, is the theory that alewives uh, are a bigger source of food than, say, shad or there, smelt or, you know, for other... They're all a source of food at different times. Um, I think the with original populations, it's hard to know what things would have been like. Um, they're just in such a number when they're here that they're, at that time, a really important food source. And then in the estuaries, they're really important. They come into play when they're out-migrating and sort of living in the ocean as a food source, too, just because they are in big numbers. So they're... A, I don't know if they're you know, more important than another, but they all sort of fit in that same 
the same play. I have two questions. Yeah. Isn't aren't Shad farther south, or is that nope. a misconception? No, we have we don't have Shad in any real big numbers around here. The Penobscot is starting to see a resurgence now that they've gotten um, they've done some serious river restoration. But the Kennebec has quite a few Shad. There's Shad in the Nariguegas River. There's Shad in East Machias. They're not. How many is not really known. They don't like traditional fishways, so they don't tend to use fishways that we see alewives in. They used to be really plentiful. Um, I mean, there's, a word, there's an expression in Washington County, when you're late, you say someone's eating shad, and that's because, you know, they, take, they have a lot of bones, so they're slow to eat. <laughs> but the expression's from Washington County, so, you know. Um, I see. Um, thank you. Yeah. The other thing is, I was curious when all the alewives um, were harvested and sent down to Boston, what did the people in Boston do? Were um, they eating them or yeah, using them for bait? In terms of Boston, I'm not sure. I have a, I'll talk a little about this in here. Smoked alewives and pickled alewives were sent a lot of places because they were a protein source that was stable, and they were used a lot in the slave trade. They were sent down to feed plantations because um, they were you know, a cheap protein source. Um, so maybe they were going to Boston for that reason, to then be sent to Haiti or somewhere. Um, they were staple foods. You know, everybody, people weren't catching alewives or shad to look at them. You know, they were putting them up because they were part of their food source and they were like a valuable part of the food source. You know, people got, got mad when their runs got shut down, not just because it was, there weren't fish anymore, it's because it was a part of their, their cultural palate, you know? You had a question, right? Uh, do the shad belong to the fish, uh, the river herring? Yeah, there, you would, when you use the phrase river herring, primarily that means shad, alewife, and blueback herring. Um, in this part of the world, we mostly say alewife to mean everything. That's the sort of, and we tend to have more alewives than anything else. Whereas down south, they say blueback to mean everything. I mean, just there's some variation regionally. So when we say river herring, it includes shad. But typically, most people think of river herring as alewives only. But they might be the whole gamut of species. The nutrient point in there, this is bringing nutrients from the ocean. Um, you know, they're marine-derived food that makes an alewife, and then it goes, and half them die when they go upriver and in, some, in some form. And all of that stuff from the ocean gets left behind. So trace minerals, maybe calcium. Um, we don't really fully know that. There's a lot of people working on that question. Um, but they brought something that used to go to the landscape and doesn't go anymore. Um, they're food for everything. People include it. They're, people fish after them recreationally, shatter more so than herring or allies, but people still, you can go out and dip 25 allies as part of recreational fisheries. Fertilizers, river towns, like Surrey, you guys probably know this, you know, towns fish and sell off their rights to fishermen for income. Um, and most of those runs now that are harvested end up being bait for either lobster or halibut fishing. And then when the fish go offshore, they fit in this whole local food web of ground fish, and that probably one of the reasons we lost our ground fish is the loss of these river runs of fish like alewives. Um, so they have all kinds of different roles, and including this one, which some people have seen this quote, but I'll read it for those who can't see. Further, the fisheries are a fruitful source of idleness and have a powerful effect in deteriorating the morals of the people, and like all uncertain modes of gain, it occasions much loss of time and produces loose and intemperate habits. <laughs> so in 1824, uh, dams were the, the deal in town, and 
water power, and there were selectmen in Ellsworth or assessors, and it's one of those two groups that petitioned the state of Maine, which had laws that you require fishways, and they petitioned the state of Maine and say, let us build a dam without a fishway. And this is why. You know, the, the rationale they were using was people, um, you know, it's not, it's, not good for, not, it's not good for the morals. So that was, you know, 200 years ago, and we're sort of still recovering from that mentality. This touches on alewives and, and culture here, part of that trade, you know, the triangular trade of food to um, plantations in the Caribbean and then run back to New England. Um, so there's this long history of alewives being part of that. But even up until this you know, century or last century, um, canned alewives were going out from down east and being sold around the world or at least around the east coast. And today even there's still people smoking alewives like this traditionally. They're somewhat of a shelf-stable food when you, when you prepare them right. And they're definitely a food when there's nothing else around to eat. And then today, this is, could have been this morning, but it was last year. This is over in Franklin at a, it's a contemporary harvester site where um, bait is harvested by you know, a local family uh, who have the rights to this run. And they're doing it in a way that's probably, except for the F-150, that they used to pull the trap is pretty similar to what would have been done 100 years ago. So all that, how does it all, where do you guys fit in? Why do we this, why are we doing this tonight? Um, it's because we want to have fisheries in our culture still, right? We want, it, that we want there to be runs in our communities that produce those benefits for us and for our, our local environments. And to do that, um, the way these fisheries are managed now, so at one time, these fisheries were managed locally only. They were managed by towns. Um, and that was a holdover from colonial times, and towns decided who harvested, how much, where the fish went, widows got them, you know, how many could be harvested, all this stuff. Um, that still happens in some, the model today is based on that. Towns still are the ones in charge of that, but only if they meet certain other requirements that have been set by uh, the state, the feds and then the state, um, to make sure these runs are sustainable. And a big part of that is monitoring, knowing how many fish are there, and knowing how many fish are there over time, so to do that, um, some towns here, a lot of you may already know this and are part of this, will have a count where they go out for certain periods of time a day, they count fish, which is just looking in the river and counting fish. Um, or a harvester might harvest fish and then count a certain portion to know what the system is producing to make sure that year after year, the run is being you know, harvested at a level that's sustainable. So there's counting is one part, but then also there's some sampling, and the sampling's done because the fish, um, they're scaly, and the scales have rings that are like growth rings. So when we do our monitoring in, the, in communities, you count the fish and you sample some, and from those ones you sample, an age is determined, and that gives us a look at how healthy is the population. Like, yeah, this year there's a lot of fish, but these fish have multi-year reproductive cycles. They'll come back year after year and spawn, and you want a population that's pretty diverse in its age, but also has some older fish that are doing a lot of the breeding. You know, there's sort of this, the carrying, the breeding stock. So that happens, and it happens in how many towns, Bailey and Maine, are there harvest right now? Is it like 20, 21? 21. So that happens in places where there's a harvest, this work happens. A harvester often does it um, with support of a town committee maybe, but usually it's a harvester because they're gaining something from the run. But they also make those runs, they keep the brooks free of things, the like beaver dams, um, a lot of work goes into keeping these runs open. And in a world where that whole landscape of Maine isn't sort of open and free for all allies, 
that kind of work protects the species and keeps it going and sort of strengthens it. Um, so in certain places like Surrey, there isn't a harvester, but there's interest in the town to have the rights to someday have a harvester or just to know how many alewives there are and control the local harvest or the local um, uh, rules around that run. And part of that is you have to do this work, you have to count. And the alewife committee here, if you don't know them and you live in Surrey or nearby, you should talk to them because they probably would need counters, people to help count. Uh, and that's what we look for too. People can help us count down east, but we also help to connect people. It's part of what we're up to. The sampling has to be approved by the state. So they send out scale samples to say you're allowed to sample this year. So if you have a run to your house and no one's there counting it, this year it'd be unlikely that you'd be able to you know, get samples read by the state, but you could start counting. If you know there's a run in your neighborhood, we can touch base about how to count. And it's basically set up a system that's consistent and repeatable every day where you go and count for a certain period of time. And you can start the ball rolling on this. I mean, you might have to jump through some hoops down the road with the state, but having data start it in a year, even if you haven't gotten permission to go count fish, um, would be a good start if you know their alewives near you and want their sort of their status to be understood and, um, and maybe get to a point where they're managed. That's the first step is counting. So you find out they're there and you count. And then we do the sampling. So also, this is that sampling part. So in some places where the town already has the rights to be doing sampling, because um, they're working on a sort of long-term monitoring project, they need volunteers who want to go out there and try to catch 20 fish uh, at certain times. That's kind of the fun part, but sometimes it's tedious. You know, there are times, at least on where we are, where the fish won't be running for days in a row, and you go there and you stand around a lot and you look for fish. But it's another place people to get engaged if, um, if there's already a scale sampling plan going on, um, like we have a few, you can go out for us and say, okay, well today so-and-so's gonna catch these, these fish. Um, and there's a procedure where you basically, you take the basic information, like measure you know, length and um, species, whether it's a blueback or an alive, and if it's a male or female. Yeah. And then you pop some scales off, put it in an envelope, and, um, they get, they get read by, by uh, our people in the state. So that's another place for, if you're the kind of person who likes to go fishing and sit around and look for fish, um, there's a way to get engaged that way. You can also, as a person, a citizen, get a fishing license and in most places harvest recreationally. Uh, not everywhere, but most places. And from those fish, I mean, you could try as a citizen to send the state scale samples if you follow the procedure. Um, those things would not be out of the question, or even um, sort of being carefully documenting what you're doing, and then you know down the road get to a point where you're trying to work with the state um, on data, you have it there ready to go. Um, the more people getting good data, the better. You know, we want these runs were managed locally, and they probably should be managed locally again. So the more we can show that local people and towns can get that good data. So the, the more room we have in the negotiations with them, the managers. Right so, Brett, before you go on. Yeah. Um, so, how long? How many years does it take for these fish to reach maturity? So three first first spawning, three four. Yeah. So there's some eight year fish out there. Good yeah. Grief. Yeah. So a lot of repeat spawners. Yep. Yeah. yeah, you want to have a certain number of older repeat spawners in your population for it to be uh, considered sustainable. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, you need these big old breeder fish. You know, they're they're. Yeah. I don't know what the ratio is, but they have a lot more eggs than the younger the younger spawners. Yeah. And then they might also be multiple. We just last week I heard someone talking about how they're 
might be multiple spawning events within one run for some individuals. You know, they'll have multiple, you know, batches of eggs that they put out. Yeah, so you want to see a run that's diverse in number and size and gender and also, um, you know, we're finding in East Machias are a lot of bluebacks, which people didn't know before. A lot of this information is just, again, we just didn't know. Everyone always calls male wives. They get harvested together, they get managed together. Um, the more info we get, the better. So, as volunteers, also, if you if you dip for alewives lives somewhere recreationally or for lobster bait, take the extra step to gut them open and see if they're blueback. You know, it's not an absolute test, but if the insides are different, they're dark colored, if they're blueback, it's worth knowing. You know, and it's just a matter of looking for that information. Um, you know, Surrey, like any little river in eastern Maine, is beautiful. It has this, you know. <laughs> Fast water, slow water, um, it's just nice to sort of see the river and think about this is what the fish are using. They're, you know, they're passing from right here in town all the way up to the ponds. A lot of landowners get, their property gets passed by these fish. It's good to engage everybody you can because probably there's some tangential relationship to somebody along the river. Part of rest of monitoring and volunteering is advocating for restoration, like saying, there's a site that doesn't work for these fish, fix it. You know, so Sarah, you guys did that. I put a quote, a thing at the bottom that says the town in 1872 constructed fishways to Patton's Pond, and this season will stock the ponds with alewives and salmon. That's from like an 1870s survey of, of Hancock County. Mm -hmm. These aren't new problems. At that time, there were no fish in this part of the world. We had done things to get rid of them. Um, and people in Surrey, again, like you guys do now, we're working to bring them back. So it's kind of cyclical. Maybe we can beat, kick that habit, but um, I think it's important to sort of look at that perspective, too. This isn't the first generation dealing with this problem. Um, and the thing about Elwise is they respond. They come back pretty well. Salmon haven't done so well, and part of that's just the life history of the species. They behave differently. Um, Alewives are a pretty successful story to think about. You know, you get a few fish in and then a lot of fish come back a couple years later if you do things right. Here's a question though. We had an ethical discussion at a meeting we had uh, a month or so ago. Yeah. Having to do with beaver. Yeah. The beaver story. So it doesn't take long in a meeting on alewives for beavers to come up. They really, it really is one of the, I'd say it's one of the most, the hardest question to get an answer that works the best, you know, like mm -hmm. town of Sullivan hired someone to take out beaver dams for fish passage in the 1800s. I mean, all these little towns do that because the beaver dams are a barrier most of the time, the alewives. This stream, I was on it recently, when it had a good bit of water going, every beaver dam is passable. They all had water over them. Mm -hmm. But if you have low water, which we have a lot, you know, in the springs yeah. now, feels like, there's probably more of a barrier. The bigger problem is downstream. We have all these babies that try to come out at the end of the summer when it's really dry, mm -hmm. and the beaver dams can block those up. But like you said, how long were beavers here? How long were alewives here? There was this long-term relationship. If you talk to harvesters about it, the ones who are probably the most yeah. active in it and have the biggest stake in some ways, they'll go through the process of knocking out pieces of the dam a couple times, doing their best, and then if it becomes persistent problem, they'll often have someone trap some beavers one year to sort of let, lower the population. You're not going to get rid of all the beavers, right? There's a lot of, they're pretty, pretty plentiful in this area. 
it probably depends on your resources, how much time you have. Can you go out every couple of days and make sure that, or especially during the peak times, like when you know that the young are going through, can you spend those days really making sure that you're knocking notches in the beaver dams, you know, and getting permission to do it, which is also could take some time. I don't think there's a good answer yet for how to do that. I think at one time we had a lot more alewives regionally and more diversity of runs and you know, probably more just fish in general in the, in the area that if a run got blocked off by beavers for 10 years, it wasn't the end of the world for the area because another run would be doing fine and then a big rain might come and blow all the dams out. You know, that's a speculation. I don't, I'm just, that's totally, you know, just thinking about what I know about this area, but I don't know, it's a hard one. If you, people don't want to get rid of beavers, then that's, then you gotta make, uh, figure out a way to do it. Every couple of days during the- I think so, I think that's the way to do it. You just, you know, you keep at it and recognize it's kind of futile, but you only have to keep it open for X number of days a year to make a difference. And it's those, you really wanna make sure they're not getting backed up when they're going out. Because if they're going out and there's no way to go, that's, you lose a whole year's age class. So I think you, you have a lot of experience beaver dams. Yeah, Penobscot, it's two miles from the salt water to the pond. So most of that is canoe twice a day, 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. And the beaver dams are breached every day. Every day. Every day. Can you send them our way? Six weeks. <laughs> Six weeks. <laughs> Probably the biggest thing we learned is that our fish leave all summer. So they were leaving six weeks after the adults came in, which is mid-June. They were out migrating. So it's really important that you keep those beaver dams open for those first few fish leaving. I mean, at some point, you're going to run out of water, yes. And there's, you know, there's only so much you can do. But there's that short window at the beginning or early where the adults are out migrating and the juveniles can out migrate at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I think it's pretty important to get those first juveniles into the ocean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were well into November in oh, deer season before they were leaving in the This is actually demonstrative of what I'm talking about. So Barb and Pat and Bailey, you want to know when to keep the beaver dams open? You talk to the people who know the river. And that's also, I think, what we try to do with management. You know, the state of Maine does a good job of certain things around management, but they can't be in every town all the time. They just it isn't realistic in the way we have way we the way our management system set up. So the more that we know locally, the better those runs are going to be managed. But that said, we also have to make sure that we're communicating because that's though we know a lot of stuff. If no one knows we know it, it doesn't matter that we know it, right? So there's certain things that we need to make sure that we're sharing. Um, and some of that may seem tedious, but it's just like, you know, I can sh share with us and we can connect to the state or connect directly to the state. There's certain key contacts. Um, even if it doesn't always feel like it's getting somewhere, I think the point being, the more back and forth communication from people who know the runs, because at the end of the day, no one knows that run better than Bailey and the crew over in Penobscot, just by proximity. And no one knows this run as good as people in Surrey, and no one knows the Orlin run as good as someone who lives on the river. So the ultimate goal of all this, all this monitoring, why the only way we're going to keep these fisheries around is by building the connections for people. So part of being a volunteer too is just literally walking out and saying to somebody, "You want to go look at the alewives this year? Or taking your grandkid, or taking your neighbors, or whatever." Um, because at the end of the day, though these fish have a lot of benefit on their own, if people aren't, if the local towns don't really care about them and people don't care about them, they're not gonna, we're not gonna get them back in the numbers that we should. So 
that's the num the easiest thing you can do as a volunteer is just be an advocate for for your lives to your neighbors. That was Brett Ciccatelli from the Downey Salmon Federation running a training session in Surrey on the opportunities for getting involved, monitoring, and supporting alewife populations in Downeast Maine. If you're just tuning in, you are listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio. Our show today is about alewives and Maine people who worked to protect sea-run fish and their habitats. This is a pre-recorded show, and we will not be taking any calls today. We just heard from Brett Ciccatelli of the Downey Salmon Federation talking about the importance of local people being involved in their local runs and becoming advocates for those runs in their own backyards. My own closest run of sea-run fish is in Solmesville on Mount Desert Island, and every spring I take my daughter to go see the incredible migration of hundreds of fish coming back up the stream right there in the middle of town. Like many streams, though, this one's history is steeped in New England's industrial development, with dams built to capture the energy of the water's flow and redirect it to mills of various kinds over the centuries. For the last decade, though, the folks at Soames Maynell Wildlife Sanctuary and Acadia National Park have been working with volunteers to first rebuild and then maintain a series of fish ladders to help the alewives overcome the obstructions and return to their spawning habitat upstream. This spring, on Earth Day, I joined a group of students and teachers from College of the Atlantic who volunteered to help clear the streams of debris and rework the fish ladders to enable easier passage for the returning alewives and create areas where other volunteers could more easily count the number of fish moving through the waterway. Counting the fish, as we heard earlier from Brett, is important for helping inform effective management. The rain was falling pretty hard this past Earth Day, which made recording the work near impossible. So I caught up with one of the student volunteers, Katie Clark, who has spent several days in the last few years donning hip waders and getting wet, working on clearing out fish passages. So this is Katie Clark about her work with other volunteers at the Somesville Fish Ladder. I'm Katie. Uh, I'm a second year here at COA. And I'm primarily focusing on marine biology and ecology and then also sustainable fisheries. Great, great. And on Saturday, you were part of a group of volunteers who went out to Somesville in the rain um, to work on some fish ladders. Um, So what were you guys doing? What's the big picture of what you guys were up to? Yeah, so... A group of people go out every year, it kind of changes who's in the group, but um, to get the fish ladders ready for when the alewives start running, um, which usually happens in about mid-May. So there's three fish ladders in Somesville, and our task on Saturday was to get them just cleaned out and kind of rebuild parts of them um, so that we can get as many fish as possible up to spawn in Soms Pond. And... Um... Can you explain what a fish ladder is? Yeah, so it's a man-made structure to help get river-run fish up some sort of man-made obstruction to the um, river, creek, or stream. And so it's actually the three fish ladders in Somesville are completely different. Um, One is this big concrete structure with these metal slats. One is you know, looks like um, a garden fence almost, an old stone garden fence with mortar in between. That one usually needs the most work. Um, and then there's just a really small one up by the cemetery. And why are they different? I think because there's a different um, 
vertical distance that the fish need, we need to get the fish through in each section. Um, also, some of them were built a longer ago time than others. So the one up by the cemetery, I believe, is from the 1850s, um, whereas there's one in the middle that's the kind of stonemasonry one um, that was built a while ago and then just was redone in, about 10 years ago, but they didn't really, they kind of fixed the old structure instead of trying to build a new, maybe more well-designed structure. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so they're all very different, and I think it's mostly the vertical, just how you're gonna get fish up that vertical distance in whatever horizontal space you have. And talk a little bit about um, the biology of the fishes and why they're even going up the streams. Yeah, so alewives are a diadromous fish species. So they're born in like ponds and lakes, and then they swim downstream when they're really little and live out their lives in the ocean. And then they come back when they're sexually mature, which I think is around four years. Although Chris would know that much better than I would. Um, and then they go back up to the same ponds and lakes that they were spawned in. And then they spawn. Um, and then some of them, most of them will head back down. Um, and then we get not as many, but we get a few repeat spawners that will come back for another year, even a third year, um, wow. to spawn again. And you just mentioned Chris. So who's Chris? He must have been out there with you. So Chris is Chris Peterson. He's a professor here at COA. And he's um, the professor that I work most closely with and who organized the COA contingent that went out on Saturday to help with the fish ladders. And who else was there? So also out on Saturday was Billy Helprin, who's the director of the Soames Minel Sanctuary, and they're the ones who actually coordinate this whole alewife fish run because it's it's part of um, kind of the the duties that the sanctuary was charged with, um, and one of their big projects. And then also Bruce Connery, who um, works for Acadia National Park. Um, so they and then some other volunteers. There's a COA alum and her husband. Um, and other, there was the, um, Dennis Smith who actually harvested that alewife run in the 1970s and kept really good records. So he came out to walk around and check out what we were doing. Um, right. And then just a couple other volunteers from the community. So it was really rainy and cold on Saturday. So um, paint the scene for us. So you guys gathered in Zonesville and then what did you do in the cold rain? Um, but we all gathered at the biggest fish ladder, which is the one that's right at the kind of head of tide, um, and like right before, right below the mill pond mm -hmm. in Somesville. Um, and that one was mostly just clearing out any branches that had collected during the winter, um, checking the wooden shelves that are in throughout the ladder to see if any had rotted out. Um, and then putting in the gate that they actually use to count the alewives when they come up. Um, and then we moved on to the next two ladders, which each kind of have their own little quirks and the things that need to happen with them. Um, the second ladder is definitely where it was like all hands on deck um, because the stones are, not all of the stones are cemented together all that well. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of both moving the like bricks that actually make up the structure, but then finding rocks nearby and trying to shore up certain corners of, of the run um, or of the fish ladder. 
and try and get a more clear channel for the fish to go through so they don't get confused. Um, and then the last one is, is just putting in these um, wooden boards to try and raise the water level a little bit in the parts of the stream that don't actually lead to the fish ladder so that the fish, there's only one big outflow and they recognize that and we'll head for that. So for you, why does this kind of, what, what inspires you to take your Saturday afternoon and volunteer to do this work? Well, I was introduced to this work through um, a class here at COA that's called Fisheries, Fishermen, and Fishing Communities. I, I really love getting to see all the different people that come out to help with the fish ladders um, and to see the partnerships that COA has with the Soma Final Sanctuary and with Acadia National Park. Um, it's really fun to see that representation from some of the different organizations in the area. Um, and this time it happened to be Earth Day, which made it even more fun. Um, it just felt like a really productive, um, hands-on, practical way to make a little bit of a difference, even if it's just for you know one species of fish that wants to use that that river to go spawn. Um, that river used to have so many more alewives than it does now, and so getting to be a part of even a few more making it making it up and some more making it back to spawn the next year. That's pretty exciting. That's great. Do you have a sense of the overall, um, how the run has been doing these last few years? I think, so the last few years, there's been about 30,000 fish coming up um, each kind of late spring or early summer, um, but the run could hold multiple hundreds of thousands. So it's, it's rebounded a lot from like the 80s and 90s. Uh, the numbers were a lot lower than, I'm not sure exactly, um, but, it could be much larger than it is currently. The, how, um, how scientists talk about how many um, alewives a particular run could hold is actually the acreage of the lakes that are available. Um, and so the acreage that we have in Soames Pond and Long Pond um, could hold much more than we currently have. How do you think that this work um, here in Soamsville um, fits into a larger picture of what's happening on the coast of Maine or restoration efforts in other areas or even um, connections to the larger Gulf of Maine? Yeah, so um, alewives, or you'll also hear them called river run herring, um, are a fantastic forage fish for larger species. Um, so like cod, for instance, um, used to feed a lot on river run herring. Um, and so the hope is that if we can restore some of these historic runs, um, there'll just be more biomass <laughs> in the ocean. Um, yeah, just to kind of work up the food chain where there's some of those larger fish species have the prey species that they need again. Do you, so you're a second year, right? Second year student at College of the Atlantic. Do you see this kind of work connecting to what you want to do in your time at being a student, a college student? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I've primarily focused on, on marine biology and ecology, um, kind of the science aspect, but I think that the getting out and doing practical hands-on restoration work, especially with people from the community, is so important just to building those relationships so that when you are trying to get a meeting to, of people together around a certain piece of research or a certain new regulation or um, trying to get people to come together around it, really any fisheries issue, having those connections already built and having it be really clear that you care and you're willing to put in the time 
Um, I think that's so important. Um, and I, you know, am planning to continue using that wherever I end up after COA too. Um, but definitely something I want to continue during the, the next two years I have here in Maine. That was Katie Clark, a second-year student at College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, talking about how getting involved in a local alewife restoration effort has contributed to her growth as a student and how she values the connections she has been able to make in the community and for the community through this work. If you're just tuning in, you are listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio. Our show today is about alewives and Maine people who work to protect sea-run fish and their habitats. This is a pre-recorded show, and we will not be taking any calls today. Our final guest today is Daryl Young, a commercial fisherman who has made it his business to monitor and maintain a couple of streams in Franklin for the past 18 years. Yeah, I said 18 years. Daryl harvests some alewives for sale as lobster bait, but you will hear that Daryl's primary goal is to help bring the fish runs back. He understands perhaps more clearly than anyone that in order to be able to harvest fish, you need to have a healthy population of the species, and maintaining a healthy population takes a lot of work and dedication. In this final story on our alewife restoration episode of Coastal Conversations, you will hear mostly from Daryl Young, but this recording was made during a workshop on river herring restoration efforts in eastern Maine that was hosted by Downeast Fisheries Partnership and held at the Taunton Bay Education Center on Gordon's Wharf and Sullivan on April 14th. So you'll also hear a lot of great Q&A from participants, as well as some insights from folks like Gary Edwards, who has worked for alewife restoration in Sullivan, Karen Wilson, an alewife biologist at University of Southern Maine, and Dwayne Shaw of the Downey Salmon Federation. So let's hear from Daryl Young as he shares his story of monitoring and maintaining two runs in Franklin for nearly two decades. All right, so we fish... uh Cod Mill Stream is right to the end. Right up here. Yeah, and we haven't been fishing that. I've been running the brooks for 18 years. By the way, my name's Daryl Young. Thank you, Daryl. I'm a member of the L.Y. Harvesters of Maine. Uh, I started the Maine Elwhite Fishermen Association for eels, and uh, but I've been doing the L.Y.s for the town since '99. Um, I'll give you a little back history on it. Back in the '40s, they fished it, and there was plenty of L.Y.s, and. Uh, they sold them for 50 cents a bushel. And then 50s, I think it went up to a dollar. And then the 60s, it went up a couple dollars. And then the 70s, it started going up five dollars a bushel. And then uh, 89, they just seemed like they overfished it or whatnot, and the fish just disappeared. So the town had shut it down for 10 years. So I was standing in line to take it over in 99 when they opened it. So I had to dig out all the beaver dams and stuff to maintain the brook so they could get up to the ponds, which was quite a job when the beginning of it. And uh, started them going, and I didn't have many fish to play with. So I figured about three to 400 bushel we had to play with. And then as the years went on, no one could tell me what I had to let go other than six fish per acre, <laughs> which uh, I think it should be a bushel an acre, but Anyways, so that's, that's what I've been doing the last 18 years, is maintaining the brooks and trying to build them up. And we got it up so it's kind of worth fishing now. So it's been quite a struggle. 
you've had to count in, in order to I've document had, how many. Oh yeah, in 2004, the Atlantic states, they wanted to shut us down because there weren't no fish. Well, the other states, they did, out of Maine. But when they come to Maine, it was collided with 50, 60 people that wanted to fish. So they kept like 19 brooks open that were being harvested so that uh, they can fish and maintain them. And I think there's 123 brooks that got LYs in them in Maine. So them, a lot of them brooks ain't being fished. They're just counting them and, and uh, keeping track of what's going on. What's the market for the catch? Yeah. Well, we're letting them go, basically. Have been. You're not selling any? Cod Mill was going to just be our first year fishing, and they opened it up for us. The, gr the grist mill you sell? Grist mill we sell, yeah. We take a small amount, you know, just to pay the lease and, and maintain the brook, the cost. And well, what's that fish sold for? What's the Lobster bait. Lobster bait. Yeah. <clears throat> Lobster men love them. What's the market bringing this year? Nah, we're going to charge 25 a bushel, I think. Yeah. Prices, you know, it's Ellsworth, I think, is going to charge 18. Down Cherryfield, they charge 20. So you're competing with the prices a little bit there. But it's always been lower than Heron. So, like I said, we don't have us a lot. Four, five hundred bushel at the most. We let the most of them let the rest go. We're trying to get the brook built up to where it's, you know, where it's really worth fishing. It's starting to be now. But it's taking all of my 18 years. So, so what do you need to pull the brook up? What is it you need to do to let the fish go? Let, let the runs go. Yeah, let the runs go. Yeah. I mean, no one could tell me what I had to let go, and and uh, you know, the first year I did it, I think I let a couple hundred bushel go, and then I had to wait four years later to see what the return was, and I could see then it wasn't worth it. You know, what two hundred bushel wasn't that, so we let four hundred bushel go. And I could see that one enough, so we just kept rising the numbers. And Where were your fish coming from? Right here, Taunton Bay, coming up through. So you they were there naturally. Yeah, they were there naturally. So we, so them go. we let them go up the brook. We don't catch them without harvesting. Without harvesting. Oh, yeah. So do you guys harvest on the four four day on three day off, or do you? Right. It? Well, no, we do the four days and three days off, but a lot of times I drop the gate only fish three days a week. You know, to let enough get through the spawn. You know, we want that was not a purpose to kill it. You know, like like they did years ago. I mean, they could fish six days a week years ago, and it put a hurt into them. They overfished it, right? So that's a long time to have to wait four years. Yeah, it is to to redo the cycle to figure out things. Yeah, there's no question about that. How much attention are you paying to your water in the fall and getting the juveniles out? So I walk the brooks every spring at this time. They go and make sure all the beavers are out. Uh, if there's a beaver problem, I have to get a trapper to come in and, and trap them out. And then in the fall, we do the same thing. We, we may, you know, go down through and make sure there's no beaver dams and stuff. So could they get out on a year like last year where we had such low water? So they had to wait for the rain. If they struggled, yeah. There was they were held up for a while until we got a fall rain, but they made it. The only year I didn't I see that they didn't make it was two thousand one. That was so dry that fall they didn't make it out of the pond. Did, you, did you see the impact on that three years? Yes, later? I did, yeah. Definitely. Daryl and the other fishermen 
they put a trap in, and I've got some pictures of the one we now have in Flanders. But the rules are that they have to leave a certain amount of the brook open both ways. They can't trap the whole thing. Until you what he's saying is, during his four days of fishing, he often leaves that trap open a whole extra day. And we do the same thing on Flanders because uh, our management right now, from both the, the harvester and, and the town's perspective, is we want to build the fishery back up. Yeah. And the counting issue, we did a count after we did our project to open and, and improve the passage for about two years. And it was if we hadn't been able to scare up a bunch of volunteers, it probably wouldn't get done. And then after last year, we, well, we didn't we didn't count last year because of changeover in VMI. We just uh, didn't get the system put in. So we're all done counting. We counted for three years. It showed a pretty progressive growth after after the project. So let me explain to you what I do. Okay. This is how I count them. I go up to Donnell Pond twice a day, usually in the morning and then in the evening, and I'll stand there for 15, 20 minutes and I'll count them. And say I counted 120 minutes, and I'll average it out for the hour, and then I'll average it out for the day, and I'll go back up in the evening and I'll count them again and say I got 50 this time. Well, then I'll say, well, I counted 150, and then I'll just split the difference basically and average it out for the day. And I do that every day. Can you help me understand the significance of beavers? Because I'm thinking 200 years ago there were an awful lot of beavers, or maybe there weren't because of trapping. I'm not sure. But when you said you had to remove beaver dams, I'm thinking, wow, yeah. they're pretty busy out there. That's right. And that's, we've been talking about ladders over concrete, but you have to remove all the beaver dams? So I, what I do is dig a hole. It only takes me 20 minutes. I usually bring somebody with me or whatever. It don't take us 10, 15 minutes. Dig it out. Go back the next day and check it. If the beavers are dammed it up, I just get a trapper in there and he, he traps it alive and takes it out and takes it somewhere else. But I'm kind of wondering about the significance of beavers overall to this whole conversation. Well, if, if you, Do you want to go ahead, Karen? Yeah, no, because I, I think that's a really interesting question yeah. to think about with these fish. But remember that um, beaver dams are come and go on the landscape, right? And once upon a time when no one was harvesting this fish, if they ran across the beaver dam, what, the, what they do is turn around and go back out to sea. And because they were repeat spawners to come back year after year, and because they could wander a little to the next stream over, they probably did just fine. It's just that nowadays, when they have less access to spawning habitat, there's less fish to start off with. Now the beaver dams are significant, because now you can't afford to lose a couple of years' worth of right. spawning. Right. Where we used to, you know, once upon a time, there were so many that it probably didn't matter. The trap in, uh, in, in the 80s, up till 85, the beaver was worth a dollar an inch. So if I stretched out a beaver and he was 30 inches, I got $30. And, and a blanket was 60, 60 inches, you got 60 bucks. And that's why they didn't have no troubles, because they were out there trapping them and they were worth money. But they were also natural predators. Right, and and six in uh, '85, the price of pelt went right to nothing, and everyone stopped trapping. And then all of a sudden, we see a lot of people. <laughs> the Atlantic states closed Cotton Mill Stream in 2011. It was because I didn't have old enough fish. I had plenty of fish, 
But when I went up there, I wasn't fishing, so when I went up there, I just scooped them when they were thick, you know. And I was getting four-year-old fish, and that was all my scale samples was, three to four-year-old fish. And they're like, their requirements, of you have to have six, seven-year-old fish, ordinary for them to let you fish. They want to see them older fish come and return fish. So I didn't have them in three years, I think, and then they decided to shut my brook down because of it, which only helped it anyway. So they had it shut down for five years, and they just got it back open for me. And, uh, and now I've gotten getting seven-year-old fish. You have to maintain the brook, which means you have to walk it. You have to make sure all the passage is free from the beavers and, and count the fish. You got, this got like a four-year cycle. So you count the fish for four years, then the next four years you count them again and you say, well, there's your return. That's how many you got. So what if things were just maintained and counted without harvesting? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good question because who's going to care if you're not harvesting it? I mean, that, that, that's what I mean. You've got to have somebody care. Like, that's what I'm asking. Yeah, that's what I'm asking. Where is this all lead? Where would it all lead? You know, what would happen? Yeah, I, I just, uh, nothing would happen. I guess the fish would just keep building up. And like I said, every brook's different. Sometimes, like Ellsworth, one year, they let it go 100 bushel. Four years later, it was a 90% return. Wow. Wow. So whether all them fish come back right. from them fish or was it other fish coming from other brooks, no one knows, but that was the return they had. So it can be up to that. Darrell, I have a question for you. Is, is there anything other than the amount you've harvested that would account for the differences between those streams? Uh, the nature of the pond or the mm -hmm. elevation or the difficulty in the... Well, in the, the elevation fish. is different, but far as uh, it's the one pond bigger than the other. I mean, it's a lot bigger. There could be a lot more fish. Uh, predators, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. No. I mean, the, the, when they come out, they're different. Some, one, one pond's small, and the other ones are big. And I don't know why that is neither. I mean, you mean the juveniles? The juveniles, when they come out, yeah. One pond, oh. they're huge. And the other one, they're little. But one, one pond's 120 acres, and the other one's 1,000 so acres. Which is which, the small and the big? So the 1,000 acre one, Donnell's, is, that's, they're, they're big. They're big, okay. <laughs> I've said for years that if nothing else controls the number of lobster traps in the water, it's going to be the limited, ever-limiting supply of bait. So my main objective, bringing that back up, is to get it to a point where we can provide our lobstermen from our town with some lobster bait. And the other thing, too, is it takes a lot of work, a lot of money, and a lot of man hours to keep one of these runs open. The idea of just, oh, it's nice, let it run. It, they don't, these things don't run by themselves, they no. run out. You're killing them if you shut it down. Yeah. Right. So why do you explain it? I mean, we work our butt off yeah. to, to dig out the dam. Yeah. It's a full-time job when I start fishing. From, from every week, I have to go, at least go check on some dams that the beavers always come in. Every, you never know when they're going to come in. Yeah. While I'm fishing, they come in, dam it up. It's like, what, what, I didn't get this. So, I think one of the implications of that is the lease term so your lease is for 10 years i think right there. yeah and other towns they might have a lease for one year mm -hmm. so the incentive mm -hmm. to go out and do all that work right. rather than just harvest the hell out of it right and just to take the cream off it so yeah i mean it's, if you, it's if, different if you got a, if you're a town and and you want to see your lys increase then 
and you've got someone young that's interested in it, give it to him for 10 years and he'll do everything he can to get that run going because he's going to benefit the last four years of it. Yeah. So historical perspective, I'm going to read you a warrant item from the town of Solomon. <laughs> to see if the town will cause a fishway to be opened from the mouth of Flanders Stream to the head of Flanders Pond and choose the fish committee if necessary. Chose Theodore Bean, James Simpson Jr., and Angus Perry as fish committee. Voted to raise, I'm not going to tell you the money yet, and pay so much an hour for clearing the Flanders stream. Now, anybody guess on when this article was passed? 1833. Wow. Yeah. So the question, the answer is, if we don't manage these streams in today's world, they're not going to produce no. because the balance of Mother Nature has been so whacked off that they, it, she, she's got to catch up. That last speaker was Gary Edwards, who has worked hard with volunteers to maintain a fishway in Sullivan. That recording also included Daryl Young, a commercial fisherman who's monitored and maintained two runs in Franklin for 18 years. And you also heard a number of other voices, including Karen Wilson, an alewife biologist at University of Southern Maine, and Dwayne Shaw of the Downey Salmon Federation. They were all attending a spring 2017 alewife meeting in Sullivan, hosted by the Downey's Fisheries Partnership. People like Daryl Young in Franklin, Gary Edwards in Sullivan, Katie Clark in Somesville, Bailey Bowden in Penobscot, Brett Ciccatelli in the whole Down East region, these folks are only a handful of the growing number of people in eastern Maine who are taking part in local volunteer efforts to restore and monitor sea-run fish and their habitats. I've been doing this show, Coastal Conversations, for more than two years now, and sometimes the environmental headlines can be a bit discouraging. This story about alewives is one of hope, as more and more people dedicate so much energy to alewives and other sea-run fish. One of their goals is to ensure a healthy population that can withstand commercial harvest. But another goal is about ensuring a prey base that so many other species, in both fresh and salt water, rely on for survival. As several of our speakers today have pointed out, alewife management is not new to our region. What is perhaps new is the groundswell of folks getting involved at the local level to bring the fish back. One theme ran through all these talks today, and that is that local people have incredible depth of knowledge about their streams and watersheds, and they also care deeply about the future of their backyard stream habitats. So if any of you, our listeners, would like to get involved in these kinds of restoration or monitoring efforts in your own town, a great place to start would be to contact Brett Ciccatelli at Downey's Salmon Federation, who can help get you started and connect you to other volunteers and organizations in your neck of the woods. Just Google Downey Salmon Federation and you'll find him. With that, we've come to the end of our coastal conversations today on alewives and the people of Downeast Maine who work to restore them. Thanks for listening. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. <laughs>